I trust by now you're in Mark 9, and we're going to be reading from verse 42 through to the end of the chapter. The the section that we're in at the moment of Mark is, is where Jesus is focusing on and very intentionally speaking to his 12 disciples and teaching them discipleship lessons. It's been the the sort of first half of Mark where Jesus came and and he just proclaimed that he's the king and that he has come. And we saw all sorts of uh, uh, one-on-ones with Jesus and his spiritual opponents, the Pharisees or the demons or the great sicknesses. And we've seen him just blowing apart the status quo of the day, declaring through word and action that the king that God has promised, long prophesied from the Old Testament, has come. He's here, and he's here to save. And now he's, he's gone from talking to the masses and preaching to the crowds and doing amazing miracles on a, on, on a large scale. He's now focused in on the, the 12 disciples to teach them kingdom ethics. He proclaimed that the king has come, and then he said that the king has to die, and in his blood the kingdom will be established. The son of man, he said, has to go, be betrayed, be mocked, be killed, and on the third day, he will rise, and he's going to repeat that three times. He's already done it twice, and each time the disciples misunderstand it and uh, start asking dumb questions. There is such a thing as dumb questions, and Jesus uses that as a springboard to teach about Christian kingdom ethics. He's already said so far that, that to think of the kingdom as something that you come into like an investment Ponzi scheme, that you come with all of the goods and all of the glory and all of the, the self a worth that you've amassed in this life, and then to come to the kingdom to say to Jesus, I'll take the cream on top, please. That'd be great. That is an idea that is damnable to the soul. Jesus actually calls people not to come and add a bit of Jesus to your life, and it's like a, a great hat, or it's the throne you've always been wanting. Rather, he said, come, and you'll inherit a cross to die on. You die to self. Find life in Jesus Christ. Lose your soul. Find it all in the kingdom. That's what he said to his disciples. And then he said last week also that, that the, the, um, the, the, the notion of Christian living is not one where we utilize our gifts or our standing or our position to one-up everybody else and climb to the top, lord it over others and, and seek our own fame, but rather it's one where we serve. And he said the last of all is the first of all in the kingdom. The least of all is the greatest of all, and so we learn to lay down our lives for one another and for the sake of the gospel. But today, we see Jesus, the king, explaining and driving home the very, very important truth that the law-keeping, the holiness, the righteousness of the internal person is of vital importance in the Christian kingdom. Very few kings, if they were, if they were to be uh, amassing subjects or if they were to go, to go and move, uh, uh, travel with their armies to a foreign town and make them a vassal state, right? they, they demolish their leadership and absorb them like the Romans would into their own empire. Very few kings in doing that would require of the, the, the officials of the city or the people of the city that in order to join our empire, you need to make sure that you're a holy, righteous inward person. You don't lust, you don't lie, you don't steal, you're, you're a holy person. No king does that. No general, when he's, he's training or putting uh, young men through the, through the uh, uh, loops to try and get them ready for warfare, uh, they will train their bodies hard, they will shape their mental uh, capacity, absolutely, but, but no one will, will make sure that those young men have a, a reign on their lust. 
None of them will care how angry internally they get or how quick-tempered they are. No one cares about that. But this king, this king Jesus is establishing a kingdom in and through his blood and it advances as much as the people in the kingdom are conformed to his image. And therefore, it's of vital importance that this king teaches on the necessity of the importance of the vitality that each member of the kingdom be active and vigilant in killing internal sin in our hearts. Let's read from verse 42 through to 50. It reads like this. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, tear it out, carve it out, the words might be translated. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will, it, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. May God bless to us the reading and exposition of his own precious, inerrant, authoritative word. Amen. Jesus starts out explaining the importance, uh, in fact, the, 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 the horrible nature and the horrible effects and results of those who would cause, with their own sin, with their own lifestyle, with their own words or example, those who would cause other Christians to walk in a pattern of sin and temptation. When he says little ones here, as he does in verse 42, whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it's just a, a, a generalization of all people who believe in me. I don't believe that he's talking just about children or that he's necessarily talking about people who are less mature in the faith than you. He's simply calling, uh, using again the imagery that he used when he had a little child on his lap and he said, all of you have to become like him, in, like a child in order to enter the kingdom, that is have childlike Faith, all of you need to seek to serve the least of you, even those who might be as insignificant as children were in their culture. Jesus is just using children as a picture that we are all children of God. It puts a level of ownership on this. It's not so much that he doesn't say anyone who, uh, who causes one of your brothers to sin. Of course, it's true that we're all brothers and sisters, but he makes it even more personal. He says these little children, because we are not one another's children. We are ultimately, in the truest sense, God's children. And therefore, it is his defensiveness that rises up in anger when somebody starts leading into temptation or assaulting or lying or deceiving his children. I don't, if you're a parent in the room, I just don't need to explain to you what that feels like when you see maybe a stranger chatting to your child in the park, or, or you see somebody, a, a teenager, start, start mistreating your, your younger child, and you start weighing up the cost, like, like how much innocence could I claim? Will they find the body? They are a minor. Is it technically 
murder, if it's in passion, you start riling all those up in your head because you love and you protect your children. Just me? All right, just me then. That's fine. I'm okay with that. Jesus is using this this example. He's showing that that one who would mislead a child is like one who would lead other Christians into sin. This is the example. The the, the kind of of person who would be doing this in Christ's church is like a, a boyfriend filled with lust, convincing his girlfriend to sin with him, excusing it because they're in love and in God's eyes they're married or whatever garbage they come up. It's the father who leads a double life and leads his children away from the faith because of his horrible example. It's a husband normalizing sin and impurity in the marriage covenant through pornography or adultery or something like that. It's a mother whose rampant sin, emotional manipulation, stirs up division in a church and in the family. It's the irresponsible, faithless pastor whose carelessness and hypocrisy comforts sinning Christians in their sin and then labels anybody who would be serious about striving after holiness as a Pharisee, as self-righteous, as legalistic, that irresponsible pastor. It would be like a, a member of a cult, a fringe cult, who deceives and lies and damages the stability of a true Christian. It would be the liberal seminary professor who uses his learning to cast doubts over the Bible for all of the students who listen to him. All of these are professing Christians, and it's to professing Christians, those who are following Jesus at least in name, at least externally, that Jesus is talking to. He's saying, take careful note of the life that you live and how you lead others. If you've been found by a pattern of your life, or as a cause of your sin, you are carelessly leading others into what God would call sin. The very, the very lifestyle that Jesus redeemed those people from, if you do that, for you, Jesus outlines the cost. It would be gr- better to have a large millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the sea. The, Jesus emphasizes the cost, the horrible picture of what he says. He emphasizes it that way to show to us how depraved how horrible the sin is that he is talking about. People uh, are purchased by his blood and the one good shepherd defends his flock and he uses these great threats as a means to do that. The the, the shepherd would would carry a stick, he'd carry a crook, he'd he'd use the crook to bring his sheep back, He he would hook it around their neck as they're in danger, pull them out of the cave, pull them away from the cliff, pull them back from the, uh, the, the ravenous wolves, but he had a rod as well, which was good for hitting. And Calvin used to say that, that every good shepherd and pastor needs two voices, one for the sheep and one for the goats and the wolves. He takes it, of course, from the imagery of Jesus, who as a good shepherd does let us lie down in green pasture and drink from a still brook and feeds our souls. But while we're enjoying peace, He is at war with a voice of threat to those goats and wolves among the congregation and to those from without. He threatens his own protection. And this is one of those examples, a truly horrible picture, the millstone. This is not a necklace with a couple of heavy-ish marble gems around it or something like that. A millstone was a large, often about one and a half ton stone that was sort of in the shape of a disc. And it would have some kind of hole 
borne through it so that a stick or a rope could be attached to it and it would be set on top of a, a large stone bowl type thing and they would throw all of their grain that they've harvested, they would take it off of the sticks, they would throw it in there and the, the, the beasts of burden, sometimes large cattle, sometimes donkeys or if you're unlucky enough, Samson was made to do this in Judges, you remember that story? They would need an enormous beast to be able to drag and turn this stone around so that it would crush to a fine powder all of the grain. And Jesus says, that millstone, with a rope around it attached to a beast, take it off the beast, wrap it around your neck, and be cast, thrown, tossed into the ocean, never to rise, to be dragged down with the light disappearing before you as all becomes darkness, your lungs fill with salt water. That is a better outcome. That kind of thing is a dreamy, daisy day compared to what happens to those who inject sin and immorality and deception and lies into the body of Christ. It's a horrible picture. It's a terrible threat. And it does not come empty. Steer clear, therefore, of all kinds of temptations and, and, and do not introduce sin into your own life, therefore, that the application has to come, that, that if you are going to stop other people from sinning, first of all, the, the limelight has to come back onto you, your own life. Have you stopped you from sinning? And that's where Jesus goes next. Look at verse 43. The threat against those who tempt others to sin, is then backed up with the, the warning to those who allow themselves to be carelessly tempted into sin. Verse 43 through 49. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, carve it out of your face. It's better in each of these circumstances to go crippled, lame, or blind into life into eternal life, into the kingdom of God, Jesus says, then with two eyes, two hands, two feet, to be cast, thrown, tossed into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, for everyone will be salted with fire. This, every one of us has to realize, though we've been in church all our life, though we've been through trials and come out on top and our faith is growing wherever we're at, we need to recognize that this was spoken to Christians. Or worse, it was spoken to the 12 disciples. If anyone could have just checked off human reasons and even, even evidences of divine grace in their life and said, I know that some people need to go home and lose sleep over this and, and pray and weep and fast to discern whether... They are those with enough sin to damn their souls. But I'm a 12 disciple. There's only 12 of us. We're pretty important. I don't think Jesus really has the budget to lose one of us. We've got to replace the 12 tribes of Israel. So there needs to be balance in this whole thing. It's about symmetry. We're good. But I'll tell others, Jesus. I'll make sure I like, afford this sermon onto a friend. I'll, I'll, I'll send this one as encouragement to my, my, my friend at church who I know is more sinful than me. It's really good that you're saying this, Jesus, for all those obvious goats out there. But Jesus is talking to Peter, who he's just said, God himself, the Father, has revealed to you that I'm the Christ. You spoke God's words just now, Peter. And yet you, you cut off your hand if you need to. John, 
who he will later promise that he won't die uh, until he's last of the apostles, that they can have this fruitful ministry of witnesses across the world in gospel proclamation. To them, he's saying, you chop off your foot. We can't get so, so one-sided onto the sovereignty of God or onto assurance of salvation that we would misdefine those things. There's, there's no such thing as too much of a good thing when it comes to theology. When people get misbalanced, it's not as if they believe too much in the sovereignty of God. That's impossible. No one believes too much in the sovereignty of God. No one is too assured of their salvation. The problem is that they're defining or understanding those things wrongly. And therefore, a, a skew-if pattern of life or mindset comes out. If our assurance of God's sovereignty in election and, and preservation of the saints, if our absolute confidence in, in the Spirit bearing witness to me that I'm a child of God, if that means that I'm allowed to keep a gangrenous arm on my body, if I think the application of that is that a little sin in my body won't go very far, if we make exceptions from holiness, then we need to start questioning our assurance rather than banking on it as the excuse to allow sin. Jesus is talking to professed, professional, high-level, mature Christians. And he says, to cut off the hand, the foot, the eye. He uses this analogy not because it is a, a, even something that will be helpful. I know that the first thing any pastor wants to do when they come to text like this is say, it's not literal. Jesus isn't really saying chop off your hand and your foot and your eye as if that takes off any of the, the, the serrated edge off of Jesus. Like I'm, I don't like listening to sermons to try and learn and, and, and it seems like 90% of the time people are just making sure you don't think Jesus is nasty or strong or mean or or divine, or wrathful, or angry, none of that. He is the lowly, little, pettable Jesus that you learned about in Sunday school. And the apostles don't mean what they mean when they say, blah, blah, blah. Friends, Jesus means what he says, but he doesn't mean that your hand is any source of sin. He is using an analogy. Because the reality is, Maybe your hand has been causing you to sin. Maybe your eye has been lusting and coveting and desiring. Maybe your, your foot is taking you places that you ought not go. Were you to lose all of them, both eyes out, both hands off, both legs off, and you're nothing but a talking torso? No, tongue's gone too because that led you into sin. Your ears are letting you eavesdrop. You slice them off, plug them with wax. You know what you are? You're a sinning, totally depraved vegetable. The problem that Jesus already spoke on back in the earlier chapters of Mark is that there's nothing on the outside, even your body parts that make you sinful. It's not ceremonial uncleanliness. It's not eating the wrong thing, going the wrong places, meeting with the wrong people. Your sin is deeper than that. It's a cancer of the bones. It's getting pumped out of your heart inside of you. So really, the only thing you can do if you want to cut off and cut out all the things that are causing you to sin, you, friend, need to die. And then in the power of the gospel, you need to be raised again, born again in the blood of Jesus Christ. That, that's the only literal application of that. If you are going to remove what is dead, then you need to have faith in Jesus Christ where Paul says, when I believed, I died to the law, I died to sin, I died to the world, I died to the devil, and I was raised so that Jesus is now alive in me. However, his application from then on 
As if to say, if you were to, to die to self, your body of sin is brought to nothing so that your, your mortal body might now be filled with the Spirit and live a new life of righteousness. If that's you, then you need to take seriously the cutting out of valuable things in your life. So, so Jesus uses the body parts to, because they are something that is, is so highly invaluable. I mean, I don't know how much you could offer to somebody in a day before 3D printing and, and uh, awesome uh, uh, technological mechanical arms. Like, we, I would prefer one of those cool things. I can morph into lasers and whatever else. That's, that's cool. But in a day before our day when, when the hand is much more valuable to you than 100 horses, you, you can't look after horses with one hand. You might be given a, a whole bunch of, of opportunity in life, uh, maybe, maybe property back in the ancient world or castles or, or, or whatever else. None of those things matter much. If you're blind, you can't look after them. You're, you're one-handed, no-handed, no-legged in the ancient world. To lose the, 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 the practical fitness and wellness of your body is to lose income, to lose the ability to defend yourself, lose the ability to communicate well. All of these things would make life near impossible. The reason he says this is to drive home the fact that what I'm going to ask you to remove are things of practical, real importance to you. Jesus is not going to start asking us to be putting things out of our life that we didn't care about anyway. Like when you're doing the, the spring clean and you feel really good about yourself because you threw out all the garbage you hadn't touched in 10 years, well, all the stuff you hadn't touched in one year is still safely packed into the garage. He's not asking you to make sacrifices you won't care about as if the slicing off of the hand just wouldn't hurt. He's saying, what I'm going to ask you to do is going to have to apply to some of those, those pet behaviors, those, those very personalized actions and ways of thinking, the, the tasks, the relationships, the jobs, the, the, the conversations, the, the apps, the movies, the, the, the hobbies. It's going to be something you enjoy, you've invested time in, and you can really measure up the, the effects this is going to have on your life. It's those things that you desire, you want, you genuinely will bleed to lose. Those things are the things that Jesus is going to ask to be sacrificed. How little it really sounds. If I was to say you need to cut certain TV shows, unrestricted internet access, maybe time of, of self-care or just sleep, Jesus is asking us to make sacrifices of those things for holiness and we, we say that doesn't sound all that extreme. Prove it. How few Christians actually hear those things, see how practical and normal and ordinary these sacrifices can be made and then actually go and do it. How few Christians spend the time carving out of their life these things that we prefer and the excuses that we keep them just don't quite apply to what Jesus is talking about here every time. We need to be careful before we make excuses or exceptions for ourselves. Well, let's each of us go home today and tonight as we think through our lives, our patterns, and, and you probably know two or three things that are just right at the front of your mind anyway, and then a few more things once you start digging. But what things has Christ been putting on your heart to let go of, to be more disciplined and cut out of your life? What things have been that cracked door through which all sorts of temptations have been coming that you've just been tolerating because it's a handy door? Plaster it over, board it up, cut out the eye, carve off the hand, chop off the leg if it would cause you to be dragged into hell.
And he says here, the cost of refusal. The cost of refusal, he says here, is an eternity in the furnace of hell. To professing Christians who allow sin to grow in their life, Jesus has no reserve to say, you call me Lord, you don't do what I say, for you the furnace is amplified. The true sheep, the true sons of God, those who have really been born again, have actually had faith in the gospel, will hear and heed his warning. When he says hell here, he says it in verse 43, he says it in verse 44, he says it in verse 45, he says it in verse 47. He uses the word hell in English, of course, though in the original it's Gehenna. Now, I'm just going to jump in before any Rob Bell fans or before any liberal seminary students start jumping in and going, you silly modern, don't you understand that in the ancient world to say hell, they're just using the word Gehenna. Be, Be aware, everybody who has very little arguments and very little learning, love just plucking out words they don't, they know you don't understand and then tell you all sorts of garbage about them. I'm angry. They'll take this word hell and they'll say, all that meant, that's just the word Gehenna and in Jesus' day, Gehenna was literally location. It was just the dump pit. It was the Wollong dump. That's all it was, that, that there was a Jerusalem built on the mountains and down in the valley just to the south and southwest, there was a great valley called the Valley of Hinnom. That's what it was called when the Jews inherited the land back in the conquest of Canaan under Joshua. They got there and it had been from ancient days called the Valley of Hinnom. And then then a a certain little place of uh, the Valley of Hinnom was called Topheth, uh, which means uh, a furnace stove. Because what they would do is they built an altar to Molech, the demon god, who, who loved the blood of children. And as a payment, he would then give fertility to the land and to the women and blessing to the nation. And so the Israelites had whored after foreign gods and had copied the practices of nations around them. And they, even the kings, would take their crying infants, expose them naked and put them on the hot stones heated by fire and the fire would be heated so that they are engulfed and burned and the drums would play so that the screams could not be heard and so Moloch was satisfied. This was the practice of the Jews. It was one of the reasons that God sent in foreign armies to come and destroy the cities, pull down the strong men, send them off into exile because they had whored after foreign gods. After the exile, when the Jews came back, they had thoroughly learned their lesson. In fact, after the exile, while there's other sins and all sorts of religious uh, uh, errors that come up with the Jews, and we see that in Jesus' day, one that they had learned, one lesson they were, had learned and were not going to go back on was do not worship foreign gods. And so the Romans could not even under the threat of death tempt the Jews to bow down and worship Rome. And yet this valley was here with an old place that had been for the burning of their children. And so they decided, for the honor of God, to to defile that place. They made it a dump. So they would throw animal feces, dead bodies of criminals that did not deserve to be buried. They would put all of their rubbish down there, and they they lit it as a perpetual fire, so that uh, in the the Greek, by the time they came back and were speaking uh, Greek by that time, it was called Gehenna, meaning Valley of Hinnom, And in Jesus' day, it was referred to as, in the English, hell. 
Jesus does not just mean, it's going to be terrible for you if you don't get holy because you'll get thrown into some fiery dump on the west side of Jerusalem. What he's doing again is pulling an analogy out of the reality and showing to us the spiritual truth that is beyond our understanding. I I often hear people ask, I remember Sproul writing on this in one of his commentaries for this, and people always ask, do you think there's literal hell, uh, literal fire in hell? He says, I'm not sure. That's my answer. I I don't know. I'm not sure. Do you think that it's literally a lake of burning, tumultuous sulfur? I don't think so. Uh, do you think that there's going to be literally a, a pit of, of burning bodies in, in huge, hellish, black, smoking flames? And my answer is, I'm, I'm not sure. I don't think so. To which some people then breathe a sigh of relief. Woo! Because hell sounded terrible. And I'm so glad it won't have those things and we need to stop. I'm, I'm not saying it won't be that bad. I'm not saying it's going to be Better than that, I'm saying when, when human language and imagination stops, God gives to us the most fearful, terrible, horrible explanation and imagery that we can see and actually understand. And our assumption has to be when the immortal God, infinite in power, decides to pour out his punishment on sinners who have despised his glory, it's going to be a lot worse than tripping into a furnace going to be unending, starving, hungry, always trying to satisfy itself on the flesh of those put there by God. And so Jesus uses the phrase, he says, the worm will not die and the, uh, and the fire will never be quenched. He's just quoting from the very last phrase of the book of Isaiah, where God in that, in that great book will show the, the glory of his covenants being fulfilled and the blessings that are coming and, of course, judgment against everybody who breaks God's covenant. That's the, that's the pattern through all of the Old Testament prophets. Judgment and salvation. Covenant blessings, covenant cursings. And he says, well, there will be glory for those who love the glory of God. Those who have despised the glory of God will be thrown into the valley where the fire does not go out, where the worm does not die, and where all men despise their flesh. It is as if Isaiah is saying, to look at it is to gag. When he says, there's so much theology has tried to be packed into these two pictures of fire not going out and worm not dying. What does it mean? And the reality simply is that, that they're both just getting at everlastingness. I don't think we can read too much into what the worm represents in Scripture and this verse and that poetic verse out of the prophets, what we need to see is that in a corpse, the worm hungry goes on until there's no more flesh to eat. But those in hell will have bodies that do not burn away. They are able to experience, in a sense that we can only imagine now, every ounce of pain that God wants them to experience, but they don't die. Think of the burning bush in the Old Testament. It was burning, but it wasn't withering, it wasn't consumed, it wasn't burning to ash, it was sustained by God's power. So those in hell will experience the sustenance in their body to never pass away. The worm will never stop eating. There will always be flesh there to burn, and it will burn, for the fire will never be quenched. The justice of God that demands an infinite payment from finite souls requires that the person goes to hell to pay for an infinite time. And repentance, faith, regeneration, 
all of the graces that are held out in Jesus and the gospel are lost at the point of death. They utterly escape those who have gone there. Jonathan Edwards was a preacher back in 1700s. He was a, uh, <clears throat> a gentleman who preached a, uh, a, and saw under his ministry what became the great awakening in the northeast uh, area of America, in the colonies. He was a preacher and he was going around. He'd already preached this, uh, this sermon once and it didn't take much of a, much of a, uh, a hearing. And uh, you have to realize in his day, religion was expected. Atheism was, was ridiculous and almost everybody was religious. Even the drunk showed up hungover for church on Sunday mornings. It was a religious normalcy, but people under even the most powerful preaching would just sort of lay down in the pews and nap. People would pay no attention to the word. They would go out and live sinful lives and give all of this external show to religion. And Jonathan Edwards, inflamed by the Holy Spirit, preached a sermon on July 8, 1741, called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And that sermon was was the spark that would begin the fire of revival that would sweep that uh, northeast part of the continent and, and sweep many thousands into the kingdom over, over a couple of decades. It was an amazing pouring out from God's spirit. But what he, what he did was when he preached that day, sinners in the hands of an angry God, he spoke about how the, the horrors of hell and how every single living human who have not genuinely placed their faith in Jesus and been born again, every single person dangles over that pit by a thin thread. And though we pretend that we're held in our life by our health and our wisdom and our retirement funds and our life insurance and our uh, medical uh, system, all of these things we pretend keeps us alive. And he says, the one thread that hangs your body over that pit of hell is the grace of God alone. The second that he wants you gone, you will plummet under your own weight in weightlessness down into that hungry furnace. And he would use this very graphic imagery. And he was, he was accused, of course, by people who said, you're, you're, just, you're frightening people out of their mind and thinking that as they get all emotional, they'll jump into the kingdom. But time will tell. They'll all get unconverted. And Jonathan Edwards says, the folly is in your own accusation." I'm not scaring people out of their minds. I'm scaring people into their minds. I'm not making up some ridiculous fable and story to try and make them afraid and jump in the kingdom. I'm telling them nothing but unmitigated, bare truth. They hang and dangle over hell. As he would preach, there there's stories of that day, people literally shrieking at the back of the church. It wasn't a kid, wasn't some unruly infant. It was Adults, fearing for their life, they clung even to the pillars of the church, afraid in this spiritual uh, throes of agony as if they were about to be cast into hell themselves. And what I want to drive home is what Jonathan said in that sermon when he said, every single soul in hell, okay, every single soul in hell entertained itself with the idea that they would not go there because they would make the necessary changes just in time. You are not told the date of your death. You are not told when you will depart and go to your punishment. You are promised from Jesus Christ, God incarnate himself, 
that unless you repent, unless you cut sin out of your life, believe in Jesus, unless you come to the king through the gospel, you will, without exception, be thrown into hell. And it could happen in moments from now, on your way home, or in years to come. But it won't make a difference for you. Every second along the way, you'll tell yourself, I'm sure I won't go there. And I'm sure I'll be smart enough to make the necessary changes in time. But you're not promise those times. I'm not preaching to you in the future. I'm talking to you now in this moment. Right now is the only moment I can promise you that is available to believe. Right now you have to cast your faith on Jesus Christ. Right now you have to lean on him and rest on him and bring nothing of your own good deeds, bring nothing of your own righteousness or religious goodness or washed up life. Bring nothing. Just come with your filthy soul. Jesus will receive and cleanse and seal and save you from an eternal hell. Eternity with Christ and his Father in heaven. Hell burns hot and hungry for unrepentant souls. And Jesus loves you enough to warn that this need must find manifestation through repentance in your life today. For Christians, if you name the name of Christ, know that you name the name of the Holy One who died to make holy people for his holy father, for an eternal abode in heaven. You took on the covenant of grace in Christ. And in that covenant, he makes obligations on you to repent. Verse 49, here he says, everyone will be salted with fire. That, that word salt there, in the ancient words, salt was used rather than fridges. And instead of cling wrapped dry age, they would use salt as a way to preserve things. You're going on a long travel through the Middle East, you pour salt all over the meat and it'll, it'll last the hot journey. It's a way of purifying things. And, and Jesus was showing that, that, that every single person, whether Christian or non-Christian, wherever you end up spending your eternity, all of us need to be purified or salted through a process of fire. Now you get choice. Either Jesus Christ, who you've placed your faith in, will purify you through the fires of affliction in this life, but he will be with you as a good shepherd the whole way, training you, forging your character, bringing out holiness and purity. And you, in truth, when you go to heaven, you will say, I was salted with fire through my life. But for those who do not come to Christ, they too will make payment or, or an eternal process of preservation through fire. Jesus is saying, choose your fire. As an adopted child going through the training grounds of this life, will you become pure? Or will you reject Christ and see the fires that do not go out in hell? But for the, the non-Christian, the unbeliever, maybe you're just not a Christian yet. You have to hear and believe the fact that all of this, this terrible, bad, horrible news of hell and your, your state, your, your hopeless, helpless state. If you're left on your own, if you're the one going to save you, you're in a terrible, horrible position. Because you have a double problem. You, you have a problem of your nature. You are by nature a sinner and, and cannot make yourself righteous, cannot make yourself a Christian on the, the cliff of, click of your fingers. You cannot decide in your own strength one day to become a non-sinner, perfectly obeying the law of God. You can't do that. You're, you're bound in sin. That's your nature. But even if we could change your nature, then there's the problem of your guilt. 
All right, maybe we could use the example that, that in Australia somebody's an outlaw and they're a, they're, they're a criminal and the government's coming for them and, and they have this, this great crime to pay for, but, but somebody comes along and gives to them fake IDs, a false passport, gets them over to, to Colombia or to, to Mexico or to America or to New Zealand, God forbid, something like that, right? They can change who you are, what you are, your job, everything. Now that's all right. That might save you. That might say that you've changed who I am and, and I'm a different person now, but the problem is that justice hasn't really been met. And, and lesser forms of religion can say that, that we'll put so much external pressure on you, we'll change who you are, we'll make you a new person through strenuous activity, but friends, the justice question still dangles unanswered. God alone is able to do both. God alone is able to come down and fix who you are through his omnipotent power, he makes you a new person, makes you alive in the gospel, spiritually able to, to walk in righteousness, a new person. It's being born again because there's nothing like it. But he also deals with the justice. Because even if you were born again, you would still have in your account before God a, a whole deal of sin to pay for. And that Jesus deals with also. He says in Revelations, I'm making all things new. And he does. He makes you new. But he did that at the price of his own blood. For every sinner who worries at the moment, if I became a Christian, you know, I've, I've got all this guilt. I'm, I'm so horrible. God deserves to punish me. What happens with that is that Jesus carried it, took it, and paid for it. That every sinner who comes to Jesus is made a new person in the power of Jesus but you were forgiven also because Jesus took your punishment in your place for your sin, becoming, becoming imputed with your guilt to pay the debt before God the Father. Jesus is alone able to save. And while he, he threatens eternal hell, and while the bad news of what happens to those unrepentant is so clear, the good news of what happens to those who have faith in Jesus Christ is so loud in these verses. Jesus' body was brutalized. He suffered death and even went into the grave to resurrect three days later out of love for those who will believe in him. Verse 50 finishes off with two last salt uh, analogies. Basically, he's saying, as we said earlier, uh, that salt preserves and keeps things pure that would otherwise corrupt. He'll say this in Matthew 5. You probably remember this is one of the most... Uh, uh, famous parts of the Gospels when Jesus said to, the, to those who were aiming to follow him, he says, you're salt of the world and you are the light of the world. And basically the, what he's saying is not so much like the youth pastor might explain it. You've got to be, you've got to be salty. You've got to be just taste a little bit different. And people will be like, ooh, cool, what's that flavor? That, that's not what he means. What he's saying is that the, the Christian influence in the world is a preserving influence. Now, whether you recognize it or not, it's historically true that where the gospel has gone and changed many people, largely we see this even in the West up until recently, but even now the witness goes on, that it's a large uh, a stopper of corruption. We don't have street-side child sacrifice anymore out in the open. I know we have secret medical paid-for abortions today, very much the same thing, but it's not an open display where we all chant and, and toss our youngest into the flames. There's been a, a sanctifying process on the globe because of Christianity. But Jesus is saying, whether it's your family, 
whether it's the community you're in, whether it's the whole nation or the whole globe, if the church, if the church loses that about it, which is distinct from the world, then it loses its ability to preserve the world. How often? How how many churches, how many many ministries really see that one of their, their mission objectives is to be altogether the same as, no difference as the world? They'll call it cultural engagement. They'll try and think that if we... We, we, we want to be a, a global ministry, a, a citywide, world-changing ministry, and yet the people in it have, have no distinction in their self-control and no, no change in their actual morality. Young men still sleeping around as many others, women still gossiping as much as any others, families still as broken, uh, parents abandoning children, pastors still as, as narcissistic as any. Those churches are not salt in the world, but are just more rotting flesh and God will take his own advice. He'll slice that off lest it drag down the hole. Make no mistake. The church as a whole must be a holy, distinct, a contrasted community in the midst of the community and the world that we live. Christianity is first an internal religion. It is an internal religion First, it is an evangelizing religion. It is an international global religion. It is a dominating, advancing religion. It is a communal and and social and family-based religion. It is culture-changing and transforming. But none of that is ever done without the first thing being first, which is the internal manifestations of the gospel in our lives. Holiness is the saltiness without which the church is powerless to to, to, to protect from corruption. Salt, to have its effect, must remain salty. And I love now where Jesus goes in the very last of the three salt imageries that he uses. He says in the end of verse 50, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. I think he's going full circle. Because the reason he started this whole discussion, starting back in Mark 9, uh, verse uh, 33, really, the reason he started this discussion about, about being the greatest or the least in the kingdom, about serving others, about being the last, about, about protecting others from sin and protecting yourself from sin, the reason he started all of this is because the disciples had been in quite an argument, quite a ferocious little debate about who was the best. Jesus applies it back to them says, if you had this salt I'm talking about in yourselves, do you know one of the first things that I would see? Because your internal lust, your internal hatred, your coveting, I don't see that so much. But if your internal lusts are not dealt with, the first way we start seeing it come out is that those around you, those other Christians, start being, start being beat up against, start being cursed and cussed and gossiped about and treated meanly and, and, and competition starts coming among Christians, Jesus says, if you had salt within yourselves, you would be at peace with one another. Inward holiness, or let's say this, inward warfare against sin results in external peace with brothers and sisters. If we are able to, to keep watch on our own animals in the zoo inside of us, if we're able to keep those under training and keep them from running around bloodthirsty, then they won't break into everybody else's yard and cause wars 
and factions. James says the exact same thing. Maybe he was thinking back to this moment. Maybe he was there, maybe he wasn't. He wasn't at this time a, a, one of the disciples. That was a different James. But maybe he heard this lesson from one of the gospel writers and he wrote in James chapter 4, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Those internal sins that we are not on top of bringing to the Lord in daily confession, praying about, reading the word of God, seeing the law of God to see where we ought to rectify ourselves. If we don't do that, then it bubbles up. Whatever is in you comes out of you and causes factions, divisions, debates, anger in the body of God. And therefore, we are full circle. Jesus might just start again and say, and to anyone who so doing causes the little ones to sin, better for you that a millstone be thrown around your neck and into the ocean. Solution is clear. We believe in Christ. We pursue conformity to Christ all through the word of God. Praise the Father for sending the Son and the Son and the Father for sending the Spirit to make us able to live all together in the community and family of God as we pursue holiness one to another. Let's pray. Father God, we have so much to thank you for because of what we've been saved from. Father God, as Jesus, your prophet on earth, your son, your Messiah, as he was outlining, and he spoke of it more than anyone else, as he was outlining the horrors of the eternal furnace called hell, we reminded, Lord, what great justice we owed to you. What great payment, what death, what suffering, what punishment we deserved to have to pay to you because of our great guilt. And Lord, we see there how, how guilty we must be and how holy you must be. And we praise you, Lord, for you've saved us from that. Willingly, from your own grace, you sent your son to solve the issue of what we owed you. You, you poured out your wrath on him, that we would be redeemed and freed and forgiven. Father God, we thank you. But because of such a great grace that has been poured out, I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would enable us, enliven us, vitalize us, give us energy so that we can walk in holiness because, Lord, we each have much to confess. There are some, Lord, today who have been uh, tolerating sin, walking in patterns, allowing themselves to make excuses. And today, Lord, the Holy Spirit would drive the sword of the word into their heart to bring them to their knees, repentance and confession and change. And Lord, there are others who have been by your spirit and in your grace laboring on and seeing great growth in their life. We pray, Lord, that they would never slow down, that you would never let them be comfortable with how holy they are, but always carving out of their life those things which hold them back, that they might be holy and pure vessels for your use in the kingdom. And God, for any that do not currently believe in Jesus, please in this moment give to them faith, give them hearts that believe, make them born again so that they're almost unrecognizable from who they were before. Turn sinners into saints, turn enemies into children. Lord, we praise you and we thank you for your grace in the gospel. Amen.